Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Alex Girofanos, science communicator. And this week, I just wanted to start the show by getting you guys caught up on what's going on with Today in Space. A lot has happened in the last few weeks, and I just want you guys to get the full recap. So here we go. I've been promising some big news for a while here, and this week we can finally deliver. We are growing Today in Space. I have had so much planned for the show over the past three years, and it's changed over time thanks to input from you, the listeners, and from the direction I see Today in Space being able to spread love and spread science. Now, I'm in a place where I can captain this spaceship towards our goals of spreading science to everybody. In order to start, we need our mission statement. Star Trek's was to boldly go where no one has gone before. We have something similar, to boldly go where no nerd has gone before, to actually talk with human beings in person. I'm being silly and serious here. I mean, there's a major disconnect between the science and the people, with all the fears attached to GMOs and vaccines and the declarations of a flat earth. There just doesn't seem to be an effective way of spreading science. And there's also a lack of scientific mindset in today's world, and we're aiming to change that. How? with the Science Communication Initiative. The SCI, or the Science Communication Initiative, is to communicate complex scientific content in the simplest of ways, but no simpler. We're using a combination of audio, visual, and kinesthetic learning styles to spread science to more people with our podcast, YouTube channel, and DIY science experiments. If we can get more people to think scientifically, the world will ask more productive questions, acquire credible facts, and come to better conclusions. If you haven't already, go check out the video for more info on our science communication initiative over at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash today in space. What it is, is a place for you to help us fund things we need to grow uh, with things like upgrades for high quality video equipment and audio equipment and editing software. And you'll also help me be able to travel the country and eventually the world to speak with passionate people in science. The more people we talk to, the more connections people will make with them and the more they'll want to learn about science. So if you love what we do and you want to help spread science, head over to the Patreon page, become a monthly supporter. Uh, Check out all the different rewards available for helping support us. Your support will go towards funding the cost of us growing. I'm not getting paid for any, any of this. There's so much we can do with just a little help from you. And I look forward to the journey ahead of us. If you love what we're doing, please consider becoming a patron and get exclusive content starting at $1 a month. And for everyone else, tell your friends and family on social media and let's spread love and spread science. Now, let's start the show. So, first in orbital news, we got to talk about the SpaceX InMarsat launch. So, SpaceX's Falcon 9 first and second stage rockets delivered the InMar 5 F4 satellite to geostationary parking orbit. From there, the Xenon Ion Propulsion System maneuvered the satellite from then on in orbit. The satellite InMarsat 5 
F4. It's, it's a lot of words. The satellite will help boost the power of the Global Express Network that delivers seamless high-speed broadband around the world. Boeing built the I-5 F4 in El Segundo, California, using part of the $1.6 billion investment Inmarsat has put into bringing customers the first co-band service from a single network provider. So the long and short of it is that SpaceX launched a communication satellite on May 15th. Uh, they did not attempt landing the rocket due to the mission requirements. Most likely, the performance and fuel needed to bring the satellite into geostationary parking orbit was so great that a landing attempt would fail because they literally couldn't bring enough fuel with them to finish the mission. Coverage was great. You know, people who attended the launch were a bunch of crazy space junkies, per usual, and I can't wait to be one of them. Who goes to get crazy at a rocket launch? Space nerd junkies, that's who. There was no live footage of the first stage rocket coming back down to Earth. Personally, I thought they probably should have kept it up, uh, kept the feed live. I wanted to see the stark difference between what landing a rocket looks like and what not landing one looks like. I thought that would be pretty good and something that you could sell later down the road, just like they did with seatbelts, where they showed what it would be like with one and one without it when people didn't want to wear seatbelts. And guess what? People wore seatbelts. Uh, not that this is as grave a uh, situation, but I'm getting off topic here. Thanks to everyone in the Space Pants squad who joined on Twitter while we were live tweeting the SpaceX launch. I, I actually learned something uh, while I was live tweeting. I asked, because it was the first thing that just came into my head, you know, what you know, if the first stage did fall down and we didn't get to see it, what would actually happen? And uh, luckily, there's a bunch of people online who answered. Alex Hutchinson at BP underscore Hutch tweeted, it's likely to just break apart. And the Falcon 9 Strongback at Falcon 9 or F9 Strongback said, uh, not explode. There's not really anything explosive left apart from FTS. Basically, the Falcon 9 first stage would just overheat and break apart. Uh, now, it's all speculation, of course. I mean, I, I didn't see the brochure on the reason why free-falling first-stage rockets break apart and don't go boom. But it, it does make a lot of sense. You know, if the rocket has used most of its fuel delivering the payload and can't make a landing attempt, it probably won't have enough fuel to explode. And plus, historically, you never want to launch with more weight than you have to. You know, in order to get to space you need to play a fickle game of weight versus fuel and you know obviously the more cargo weight requires more fuel to get where you're going and more fuel to move around also adds more weight and not all rockets are made equal and you know that delta v in the rocket equation is everything and it's no wonder that there wouldn't be any extra fuel left over so this is what happens when you live tweet. Sometimes you say some silly things, but the important thing is to learn from it. So, another launch in the books and another great live tweeting session with the Space Pan Squad. Uh, for the next launch, uh, make sure to follow me at El Greco, E-L-G-R-3-C-O, and you'll be able to follow the Space Link Squad, uh, Space Pan Squad a little more easily because uh, anyone who's a part of the Space Pan Squad knows uh, your notifications fill up very fast and going onto Twitter seems to be a big thing. Much love to the Space Pan Squad, uh, and we'll see you live tweeting and talking about space online. Peggy Whitson and Jack Fisher went on the 200th spacewalk to replace a large avionics box that supplied the electricity and data connection to the science experiments and replacement hardware stored outside the station. The two had a shortened spacewalk due to a small leak detected in the second SCU connected to Fisher's suit. 
Uh, the SCU is an airlock component that provides electricity, cooling, and communications to the crew. Sharing the SCU caused additional battery draw and reduced the battery power available for the rest of the spacewalk. Uh, but everything was all good and went well from what I saw. Teamwork was really amazing to watch and listen. ESA astronaut Tomas was great with a robotic arm and the cameras. You know, I haven't been this excited to watch an astronaut uh, with a camera since Scott Kelly and before that, Chris Hadfield. Uh, you know, it was really fascinating to think about the situation that they were all in. Uh, they've been training for this mission for years, and they've been through all the steps and all the movements before. And now they're performing this microgravity ballet of repairs outside the space station. You know, it tells me a lot about the caliber of human being that becomes an astronaut. That, you know, the work ethic, the belief in one's own abilities, and the passion to do something only hundreds of human beings have ever done before. Also, a sense of humor seems to be a staple, uh, which is great to see. Uh, you need humor in the void of interstellar space. What better way to shrug off space weirdness than with a few laughs? So, congratulations to the team that conducted the 200th spacewalk, Peggy Whitson, Jack Fisher, and everyone else who was involved on board to help this mission go flawlessly. Back down on Earth, NASA is currently reviewing 12 proposals for future unmanned solar system exploration. These missions will fall under the New Frontiers program, of which a few of them you already know. New Horizons that went to Pluto, Juno that's at Jupiter, and OSIRIS-REx, which is on its way to the asteroid Bennu as being a part of this whole Frontiers program. NASA encourages both domestic and international scientists to submit mission proposals. The new Frontiers missions are based around having a principal investigator leading the whole plan. I've met the PI for the New Horizons team, Alan Stern. Uh, he's a very nice guy, seems to love what he does, and is very intense and focused, which... I like. According to an article written by Bill Keeter on May 5th, 2017, that the goal is to select a mission for flight in about two years with launch in the mid-2020s. An associate administrator for NASA's Science Mission Directorate in Washington was quoted saying, New Frontiers is about answering the biggest questions in our solar system today, building on previous missions to continue to push the frontier of exploration. We're looking forward to reviewing these exciting investigations and moving forward with our next bold mission of discovery. There were only six themes uh, for the investigations this time around. Those mission themes are as followed. A comet surface sample return, the lunar South Pole Aitken Basin sample return, ocean worlds, Titan and or Enceladus, a Saturn probe, yes, a Trojan tour and rendezvous, and Venus in situ explorer. The announcement for the selection of one or more mission concepts for phase A study will begin in November of this year. After that, New Frontiers will select one of the investigations to continue into subsequent mission phases. phases. According to this article, all mission proposals are selected following an extensive competitive peer review process. So it's very interesting to see. The New Frontiers program has done very well with NASA and with the public. Pluto was huge. New Horizons was tremendous. OSIRIS-REx is looking to be like it's going to be a great mission. And Juno, even though it's having issues, is still providing some great data. So it'll be interesting to see what mission gets picked. If I had to choose, I would send, I would pick missions if they were good. If every mission was fantastic, let's just assume that, uh, I would pick one ocean world mission and 
you know what? Let's do a comet surface sample return. We need to start figuring out how to do that. So it's not a bad idea. Now let's break for our first 3D printing update, which we've done on the podcast before, but we've never done it on YouTube. So let's do this proper. Hit it. What is AG3D? We provide design, reverse engineering, and 3D printing services. Our goal is to bring your ideas into reality. Entrepreneurs looking to create a prototype to test their idea, college students who need to 3D print a model for a project, and anyone who wants to create something new, useful, or just fun. It's all possible with AG 3D printing. Not only are we going to provide engineering services for people to bring their ideas to life, we're going to educate. We will be creating 3D printing videos. We'll share tips, tricks, troubleshooting guides, and projects for anyone who wants to 3D print for themselves at home. We want to help with the basics so that anyone can climb the steep learning curve faster and with more confidence. This week, I want to share something a little more visual. So if you're just listening, make sure to check the YouTube video later. As you may have noticed, we changed our set a little bit here. This is the AG3D logo printed in multicolored PLA from Hatchbox and Rigid Ink. Yes, this part was printed all at once using two colors. No, I am not getting paid by either company to say I use them. Uh, but I regularly use both, and for each different reasons. You know, Hatchbox balances the quality versus cost equation for me, and Rigid Ink's filament is great, but I usually save it for some special projects. Honestly, with a little calibration, any decent filament can look great and perform well, if you're willing to put the work in to get it calibrated. The logo plate was created using the Prusa i3 Mark II. Uh, the green PLA is from Hatchbox, and the purple PLA is from Rigid Ink. I printed it using 200 micron layer height, 20% rectilinear infrared, fill and I used a thin layer of PVA or glue stick for those that don't know and had it cross hatched on the bed surface to make adhesion better. Glue stick for those that are unaware is very useful for basic FDM 3D printing. To close out this week's 3D printing update, let's talk about how I use 3D printing to solve a problem. Engineering is solving problems, but not every solution has to be complicated. Since I can't afford to just buy some crazy contraption that will hold my camera exactly where I want it, I got creative and 3D printed some shit. The issue was that the best place for, to mount the camera was right above the monitor I used for the show. But the monitor was really shaky and I'm Greek and I can't help but fling my arms around when I speak. In order to fix the camera mounting, I created a GoPro arm setup that attached to the top of my monitor. To fix the monitor shaking, I designed and 3D printed two stabilizers that hold up the monitor from underneath and keep the camera steady through even my most wildest gestures. In the end, it cost me less than $100 based on AG3D services, and that allowed me to create the idea, test it, and find a custom solution all within a few days of work. Compare that to the various rigs and setups you can find online for cameras, uh, it can get very pricey quickly. Just a quick search online for some camera rigs and stands, and you can look to pay $1,000 pretty effortlessly. 3D printing helped me create a completely custom, effective, and fast solution for fractions of the cost. Just another way that 3D printing can be used to solve almost any problem. This has been the 3D Printing Update. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at AG3D Printing, on our website, www.ag3d-printing.com. If you're a student or teacher, get 25% off every order. Just email us with your school email so we know that you're still a student or staff member. If you're new to AG3D Printing and want to start your first project, contact us and mention Today in Space. You'll get 15% off your first 3D print from now until June 30th of this year.
So to close out this week's episode, I want to talk a little bit about communication since we're on this completely new journey going where no nerd has gone before to communicate. We Let's talk about communication. Let's actually talk about it, right? So one of the great things for space the last five or so years has been the uprise of space-themed movies. It's been great for getting people to think about space and what living in space would be like. They get a chance to park themselves right in the thick of challenges and trials and glories of the final frontier. There are a lot of them now. There's a growing list of them I seriously need to see and catch up on, but I'll stick to just three recent ones, Gravity, Interstellar, and The Martian. So these movies come up in conversation all the time. The first one, Gravity, is good. Uh, And I think it was one of the first in the scene when space movies started making headway in pop culture. Now it's not the best space movie by any means, but it shows a very real aspect of the dangers of space travels. Uh, It's a movie about overcoming fear. I mean, if you are looking for (laughs) a list of infinite ways that you can die or, or that things can go wrong, then space is the place for you. Now, was gravity 100% scientifically correct? No. And I don't think good movies can be at this moment scientifically correct to the T. You know, that's just going too far down the science hole. You know, there's there's got to be a trade-off you need to make in order to make the movie look great and be watchable. Right now, you can't go full-on science and expect lots of people to go see it. Uh, Movies need to sell tickets and they need to tell a story. Let's correct them when they're wrong and praise them when they get the science right. Now, Interstellar hits me in all the right places. It's thrilling. My heart races every time I watch that movie. It expresses the challenges of true interstellar travel like relativity and personal loss. It also starts to show the challenges humans need to overcome like using recordings of nature to keep your head straight uh, in the void of space, especially when you finally realize the situation you're in. Nothing takes the idea of a thin wall protecting you from the void of space, like some crickets and rain, to bring you a little back down to Earth. It also deals with very heavy and deep subjects like fear and cowardice. Both of these are real emotions and situations that would be heightened by living and traveling in space. But the movie's very long, and it doesn't stop the entire three hours. It's like a three-hour rocket launch where it just keeps going. you got the Thriller fans, the sci-fi fans, and, of course, the space fans. But it doesn't have much for other people, and that's okay. Uh, To me, the movie's perfect, and it grows on me each time I watch it. I pick up new things each time. The Martian seems to grab a lot of people the right way, especially those who are not space freaks like myself and the Space Man Squad. Uh, My mother, who does not like heights or the idea of space, loves that movie. She's willing to sit through the terror of a space flight because the movie's that good. She always tells me, I really don't like the idea of space, but I love The Martian. And because of that, whenever we watch it, she asks questions on, uh, you know, about what's going on. You know, why did they do that? Why wouldn't they do it this way? She's actively learning about space travel because of a space movie. And she has her own aerospace engineer to ask questions, which which helps. But it begs the question, what is it about this space movie that's different from the others? Why are people who aren't scientists re-watching the movie over and over again? Is it the humor? Is it the writing? Is it the carefree use of swearing? Maybe. But I think it does something that scientists forget sometimes. We're all very busy trying to do the best science we can or separating our personal lives from the work. Scientists reason with the what, why, where, and how of things. 
not so much, if ever, on the who. The Martian, however, deals with the who and explains the what, how, where, and why. Space is the setting and the theme, but not the major character because science is not a thing. It's a mindset. It's a set of guidelines to understand and manipulate our universe and our reality. In The Martian, there's plenty of science and plenty of space. Some pretty complex topics, actually. But what I see is people connecting with the characters. They want to know about their struggle. Internally, they might think, what would I do in that situation? Or would I do the same thing? All the while, they're learning about space. The reason The Martian is so effective is because it has characters that a lot of people can relate with, and the characters interact with each other very well. I bring this up because I think it's essential towards communicating science effectively to everyone. It's also at the core of the science communication initiative. You know, movies are stories. Stories are what we can all share in. It connects us to who we are and who we want to be. If we focus too much on the details, we lose sight of the who, which is clearly a very powerful communication tool. If we can all, as scientists, begin to use the who in our communications, people will connect with us and in turn with science. Of course, it is important to note that not all people care about the who as much as others, but if we're talking about spreading love and spreading science to everyone, the who is very valuable. And that does it for this week's show. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to check out our Patreon page if you want to learn more about our science communication initiative and see all the rewards you can get for helping support us monthly and help us grow the show. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast player and to our YouTube channel as well. Please like and share if you like what we're doing. Every one of those goes a long way towards spreading love and spreading science. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.